One of the most interesting and unique events in Canadian history happened at the turn of the 20th century in a remote and northern part of our country. It all began in August of 1896 when an American prospector named George Carmack discovered large quantities of gold on Rabbit Creek, one of the tributaries of the Klondike River in the Yukon Territory. And recognizing the immensity of what he discovered there, Carmack immediately staked out four claims along the river, and he was soon followed by many other treasure seekers as word began to spread throughout the northern mining camps. By the following July, some of the American miners started returning home to Seattle and San Francisco with unbelievable wealth in their possession, an estimated billion dollars that came back to America on the first two ships. What happened next is often called the Klondike Stampede. As 100,000 people, including the mayor of Seattle, quit their jobs, left their homes, and traveled north in search of their own fame and their own fortune. Most of these people had no experience in mining. Most of them had, had no idea what awaited them in the Great White North. You see, in those days, traveling to the Yukon was not easy. It was not cheap. Most inexpensive routes there involved treacherous hikes over steep mountain passes. And in addition to that, the Canadian government required every American prospector to bring in a year's worth of food and supplies, which usually had to be carried in by hand. The process of carrying these supplies in, 60 or 70 kilograms at a time, could require up to 30 round trips inland, which meant 1,600 kilometers of walking and 90 days of backbreaking labor. Avalanches were common along the trails and claimed the lives of many. Sadly, when all was said and done, very few of these men ever realized their dream of becoming rich. Of the 100,000 that originally set sail from the west coast of America to go to Dawson City, only, only 40,000 ever got settled into Dawson. And of the 40,000 that made it to Dawson, only 20,000 became prospectors. And of the 20,000, only 4,000 struck gold. And of the 4,000, only a few hundred ever became rich. The reality was most of the best mining claims had been snatched up long before the massive crowds from America arrived. But nevertheless, the Klondike Gold Rush illustrates the lengths we will go to, the dangers that we will endure, the risks that we will take in order to gain the things that we think will make us happy and bring satisfaction in life. Well, this morning we continue on in our study of the Old Testament book of Job. Our inspired author today is going to take us deep underground on a mining expedition. We come to a chapter today that is full of imagery from ancient mines and ancient miners. Men like the Klondike Stampeders who are willing to do almost anything in order to bring their hidden riches out of the ground. As we're going to learn today from God's Word, there is something far more desirable than buried gold. Something far more valuable than hidden gemstones that God wants us all to possess. And so if you have your Bible with you today, I'd ask you to turn with me to Job chapter 28. Job 28. Listen carefully as I read this portion of God's holy and inspired word. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. 
They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows. The falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle. The thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. It is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. Cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. Cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is is far above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. He said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. This is the inspired and inerrant word of God this morning. We're making good progress through our study in the book of Job, and we come this morning to a chapter that marks an important tipping point in the narrative. Back in the opening two chapters, we learned about Job's suffering. We got to peek behind the heavenly curtain to see why all of these things were happening to him, how God was sovereignly using evil in Job's life to accomplish something immeasurably good in the grand scheme of things, the vindication of God's holy character against the slanderous lies of Satan. Then from chapter 3 to chapter 27, we eavesdrop on a debate between Job and his three friends, a debate that gets increasingly louder and more hostile as the dialogue unfolds. Job's friends, as we learned last time, were so committed to the principle of divine justice and retribution, the only explanation they could think of to explain Job's suffering was that he had somehow offended God. Job was somehow suffering the consequences of his own sin. It was a heartless response, a brutal response to a man in deep anguish and pain. And as we learned last time, it was also a deeply flawed perspective that did far more harm than good. An example of good theology gone bad. A good principle about God's justice and righteousness applied in a very unbiblical and ungodly way. For 23 chapters, Job is is bombarded by accusations and theological barbs from these men. But through it all, he stubbornly and doggedly maintains his innocence. He expresses his desire to have a hearing before God. Job wants an opportunity to plead his case in the heavenly courtroom. He wants vindication from the Lord himself. 
And so we discover in the first 27 chapters, Job had very different desires and motivations than his friends. His friends were obsessed with Job's financial and physical restoration. Their counsel to Job was that he should repent of whatever wrong that he'd committed, do whatever he needed to make God happy again. You tell him over and over again, appease God so that you can get back all of your stuff, so you can be restored to your original position of prominence and health. This was an ancient version of the prosperity heresy we still encounter today in many churches. A foolish attempt to manipulate God in order to attain His blessing. No matter how hard these men argue, no matter how hard they press their case for prosperity, Job was not buying it. Job was not budging one inch. You see, Job was a righteous man. He was a blameless man who deeply loved God. And Job's concern in all of this was not so much with his own health and wealth as it was with the status of his relationship with God. The distance he felt had come between them. The horrible feeling of divine abandonment. Like his three friends, Job loved God far more than he loved God's gift. And so he stubbornly insists on his innocence He pleads over and over again for vindication, even suggesting at certain points that justice might not come until the afterlife. Job believed in the afterlife. He believed in a time when he would be resurrected, enabled to stand in a renewed body before the Redeemer and the Mediator who was yet to come. By the time we reach chapter 27, we've arrived at a deadlock between Job and his miserable comforters. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have run out of steam. They have nothing left to say to Job. And Job, in turn, has not been persuaded by their arguments. He has not been moved to action by their advice. What we have then in chapter 28 is an interlude. This is an intermission of sorts where Job summarizes the case as it stands and then switches the flow of conversation from the subject of divine justice to the subject of divine wisdom. Job has come to realize through this extended debate with his friends, what he really needs in order to make it through the trial is not immediate justice from God, not to have all of his stuff back, not to have his health and his property restored, but rather what Job really needs at this point is wisdom from God to sustain him. Job needs wisdom from God to help him understand how he should act, how he should respond in the midst of such great pain and turmoil. And so we find here in the middle of the book of Job a majestic chapter about divine wisdom, really a chapter that can stand by itself in its meaning and its message. This is a chapter that resonates very closely with other biblical teaching we find in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the New Testament book of James. It's a chapter that paves the way for God's speeches a little later on in the book. It's a chapter that teaches us of our own desperate need for God's wisdom whenever we are facing life's difficult storms. And Most importantly, this is a chapter that shows us where divine wisdom can be found. Job's poem on wisdom here in chapter 28 breaks down into two main parts. In verses 1 to 11, Job takes us deep into the heart of the ancient mining operation to illustrate our relentless quest for wealth and material possessions. Then in verse 12, he asks the reader a crucial question that gets to the very heart of the matter. A question repeated a second time in verse 20 for emphasis. Where shall wisdom be found? 
Verses 1 to 11 are the setup for Job's argument. Verses 12 to 28 contain the answer to Job's question as he points us towards the only source of wisdom in the world and the only way we can possibly get it. Let's notice, first of all, the illustration that Job uses in the first 11 verses. Illustration that describes the human pursuit of wealth and material possessions. These verses give us tremendous insight into the natural priorities of the human heart. But notice also, these verses are poetically beautiful and historically fascinating. Verses 1-11 to contain one of the only existing descriptions of mining in the ancient Near East. An industry that has been at the heart of human civilization for millennia. This is a description I think many of us would still recognize even 4,000 years later, especially if you've ever had the opportunity to go deep into a mine shaft like I have on those times we went on family vacations to Sudbury and the big, big nickel. Job was very familiar with the mining industry. He's using here the image of men working deep underground to emphasize what we human beings naturally seek in this life, the things that will make us wealthy, the things that we sincerely believe will make us happy and satisfied. Gold and silver, precious jewels of all kinds that can be sold for a profit or else displayed as a symbol of our own prosperity and prestige. These are the kind of things we humans naturally desire and pursue with our whole heart. And no matter how much culture has shifted and changed in the 4,000 years since Job wrote these words, some things will always remain the same because the human heart is the same as it always was. Ever since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, our race has been plagued by greed, the inordinate love of money and material possession, the unquenchable desire to fill our lives with the things we think will satisfy That isn't to say, by the way, that material possessions and money are bad in and of themselves. doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard to make a living. But very often, the tendency we struggle with is to take these good gifts from God and to turn them into ultimate things, to turn them into idols that end up taking His rightful place in our lives. In other words, money and possessions easily become the thing we prioritize and pursue the most. The thing that we look to in life for meaning and identity and security, happiness and satisfaction. A couple weeks ago at American Thanksgiving, a Jewish rabbi I used to know in Montreal posted a comment on his Facebook page. I thought it was rather insightful. This is what he said. Gotta love a country that dedicates a whole day to appreciating the things you have and then spends the whole next day replacing them. I think that really captures the heart of what Job is probing at here in the first 11 verses. The fact that we will go to any length to gain wealth and possessions because we've convinced ourselves those are the things that we really need the most and we can't live without them. Notice first of all in these verses the way Job describes the great creativity that man will use in his pursuit of material wealth. Not only did this ancient culture figure out a way to dig deep into the rock in the days before they had heavy gas-powered machinery, they also figured out a way to light the dark tunnels as we read in verse 3. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit the ore in gloom and deep darkness. And Job wants us to appreciate here the great ingenuity of man in figuring out a way to get all of these precious metals and gemstones out of the rock First by digging the crystals out of the, out of the underground tunnels, then by smelting the raw material so that the valuable copper and iron and gold can be separated from the impurities 
and then sold in the marketplace or traded for a profit. Man is immensely creative in his pursuit of wealth and hidden treasure. But notice, secondly, the way that Job emphasizes our tenacity, our persistence. Man digs in remote locations far away from home, as we see in verse 4. He dangles from ropes and works in conditions that are incredibly dangerous and harrowing. Or in verses 7-8, to venturing into the deep recesses of creation where even the most brave and noble members of the animal kingdom will not dare to set foot. We are so persistent in this pursuit of material wealth that according to verse 11, we will even dam up entire streams and rivers if it will only reveal a new place where we can dig for buried treasure and uncover these riches. This is rich, poetic imagery Job is using. But the point he's making here is really quite simple. We will go to almost any length in our pursuit of wealth. There is nothing that we will not try. There is no barrier that we will not overcome. There is no risk that we will not take. And if you don't believe me, just try shopping on Black Friday when everyone is trying to get their material possessions. Well, if you're wondering where Job is heading with all this talk about digging around in mines for gold and for silver and gemstones, the answer comes in verse 12 as he asks an important question that really gets us to the heart of the matter. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? We all understand, I think, certain commodities in this world are very rare, and typically the rarer something is, the more valuable it is, the more money people are willing to pay for it. I got my first lesson in the value of gemstones as a poor university student in Guelph when I was working extra shifts at the grocery store, saving every dollar and cent to buy a diamond ring for the woman who later became my wife. Back then I thought diamonds were outrageously expensive. The truth is there are many gemstones in the world that are far rarer, far more expensive than diamonds. Out of curiosity this week, I did a little research. I discovered the rarest gemstone in the world today is a crystal called painite. And for many decades, there were only two known specimens of this crystal available. I'm sure a painite ring would make a wonderful Christmas gift. But if you want to buy one today, it's going to cost you around $60,000 per carat. A little more expensive than the ring I bought Leslie. But you see the point here. The rarer something is, the more valuable it's going to be. That's the way it works. And what Job wants us to understand, beginning with the question in verse 12, is that there is a commodity called wisdom that is far rarer than gold, rarer than silver, rarer than diamonds, and yes, even rarer than painite. Any gemstone, no matter how rare it may be, can be acquired if you have enough time and persistence, if you have enough creativity to locate it and dig it up or if you've got enough money to pay somebody else to do it. That is not the case with this commodity called wisdom. Wisdom is so rare, brothers and sisters, Job tells us in verse 13, it is not found in the land of the living. You can dig from morning to night in the most remote cavern on planet earth and you will not find it. You can take a submarine to the deepest ocean trench, it will not be there. We read in verse 14, the deep says it is not in me. The sea says it is not with me. You can go on your computer this afternoon, search eBay and Kijiji from morning to night all month long. You will not find wisdom for sale anywhere in the world. It's not available on the marketplace. It's not for sale in the store. 
That's why verses 15 to 19 tell us it cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in the precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Money can buy many wonderful things in this world, but one thing money cannot buy is wisdom. Because wisdom, simply put, is not found in this world. That's the point that Job is making in these verses. And the reason that he's making it is because his three friends have come up totally empty in the realm of wisdom. These guys have been speaking and talking and going on and on with words for pages, for chapters, but not one word of wisdom has come out of their mouth. Poor old Job who is starving for one small glimmer of wisdom to help make sense of his situation has come to realize how rare, how valuable wisdom really is. This is a remarkable thing coming from a man like Job. At one time, the wealthiest, the most prosperous person in the East, the man who had everything in terms of material wealth has come to realize in the depth of pain and misery, money is of no value if you don't have wisdom to go along with it. You know something, brothers and sisters? Trials and difficulties in this life are often the very thing that God uses to reveal the true poverty of our heart and the need that we all have for wisdom. Very often, God uses trials and troubles to reveal our lack of wisdom and to expose the counterfeits we have been depending on and relying on. Any miner will tell you there's a big difference between finding a genuine gold nugget and finding a piece of fool's gold. The same is true when it comes to wisdom. Job's three friends were absolutely convinced their words, their speeches were full of wisdom. Really, their speeches were full of hot air. Sure, there was a lot of knowledge in what they said. There was a lot of information. We might even concede that much of that knowledge and information was true. But knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. Great Anglican theologian J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God gives a wonderful definition of wisdom and I printed it for you in the bulletin. Here's what Packer says. In Scripture, wisdom is a moral as well as an intellectual quality, more than mere intelligence and knowledge, just as it is more than mere cleverness and cunning. For us to be truly wise in the biblical sense, our intelligence and cleverness must be harnessed to a right end. Wisdom is the power to see, the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom is, in fact, the practical side of moral goodness. You see, brothers and sisters, it is quite possible to have all kinds of knowledge about all manner of things, but not to have one tiny bit of wisdom. It is possible to be extremely intelligent, to be extremely articulate, and yet to be lost in spiritual folly. If you don't believe me, take a trip to the local university. There is a big difference between a gold nugget and a worthless piece of fool's gold, even though these two things sometimes look similar on the surface. And in the New Testament book of James, God gives us valuable guidelines on how we can tell the difference between true wisdom and its counterfeit. Who is wise and understanding among you, James says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Some of us here today tend to confuse wisdom with knowledge. Others tend to confuse wisdom with a kind of worldly cleverness and cunning. In the biblical sense, wisdom is neither of these things. It is, as J.I. Packer says, the ability to harness our intellect and our cleverness for a good and godly purpose. It is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. And in the crucible of his own suffering and affliction, Job comes to the conclusion that we read in verse 13. Man does not know the true worth of wisdom. Because either we confuse wisdom with one of its counterfeits or else we continue on blindly in the relentless pursuit of wealth and happiness, never realizing and appreciating that there is something vitally vital that's missing in our lives. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if wisdom really is a priceless commodity, does it not logically follow that we Christians should be pursuing it with great enthusiasm and great persistence? That we should be pursuing wisdom with at least as much persistence as we see the unsaved world around us chasing after wealth and health and prosperity. And so I ask you this morning, Christian, how much do you value wisdom? To what degree are you pursuing it? That's the first question I think we need to ask ourselves in response to this part of God's Word, but it naturally raises another question. If wisdom is not found anywhere in the natural world, then where do I find it? How do I attain it? Well, thankfully, the answer is found right here in the concluding verses of the chapter. Have a look with me. Again, beginning at verse 23. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He gave the winds its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when He made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then He saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And He said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. If we want to discover the true source of wisdom, brothers and sisters, we don't need to look in a mine shaft. We don't need to look in the sea. We don't need to look in the marketplace. We need to look to God Himself. Because God is the only source of wisdom. Only God knows where wisdom can be found. He is the only source. Understand this morning, friends, wisdom is a divine attribute. Our Father in Heaven is perfectly wise by definition. That's why the Apostle Paul calls him the only wise God in the epistle to the Romans. God alone is perfect in wisdom. And any wisdom that you and I will ever possess or demonstrate in this life is but a dim shadow compared to the perfect sovereign wisdom of our God. 
concluding verses here in Job 28, make it abundantly clear our God is perfectly wise in every way and especially in His providential care for the creation. He's the God who sees everything under the heavens, verse 24. He's the God who determined how strong the wind would blow, what level the sea would be, verse 25. He's the God who decreed the cycles of rain and thunderstorms, verse 26. He's the God who declares, the God who establishes. He's the God who searches out, verse 27. There is nobody like our God. A God who is perfect and flawless in His wisdom and His righteousness and His holiness. And the good news for you and me today is that this God who created you desires to give His wisdom to you. Not so that we would perfectly understand the mysteries of providence and the way that God chooses to run the world. Not so that we would have answers to all of the why questions we sometimes ask. No, friends, by giving us His wisdom, God is granting all the resources we need to apply knowledge correctly in any situation, to live here on earth in a way that pleases Him and advances His kingdom purposes. If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We cannot find wisdom in the natural world. We cannot buy wisdom in the store. The good news is that we don't have to. God wants to give us wisdom as a gift of His grace. But in order to possess this wisdom, you must first learn to fear Him. As Job tells us in verse 28, you must become one of His followers. Because the fear of the Lord means we will have a true reverence for God's holiness. That we will respect God and reverence Him and love Him as our Heavenly Father, as our Sovereign Lord. It means, secondly, we will have true humility in His presence. That we will recognize that we are sinners in continual need of His grace. It means, thirdly, that we will have a heart that desires to turn away from all evil and a heart that will instead delight in His holy commandments and His moral law. And what's interesting to observe here in these verses is that these were the same spiritual qualities that Job had all along. Think back to the very first couple verses. Job is described as a man who is blameless and upright, one who feared God and who turned away from evil. True wisdom is found in God alone. It can be accessed only by those who truly fear and reverence Him. And in the, fu and in the fullness of time, long after Job and his three friends had gone into their graves, God sent His one and only Son into this broken, sin-cursed world to be the perfect embodiment of divine wisdom in human flesh. He is the one described in 1 Corinthians 1.24 as the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is the one Colossians says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you sense your need for God's wisdom today, if you find within yourself a desire to reverence and fear the God who created you for His glory, you need only look to Jesus Christ and embrace Him as Lord and Savior.